So Romans 4, 13 through 25. A very, very brief recap for all of you, just so we can see where we're at and find out why we're talking about what we're talking about today. So Paul has already established Jews have advantages, he says. Okay, so they were entrusted with the oracles of God. They were given the commandments. Nonetheless, Jews are judged the same as Gentiles. Do they have advantages? Yes. Are they actually better off? No. We're all judged the same, and in keeping with that, we have all fallen short of the glory of God. We have all sinned, and so none can be declared righteous because of the judgment which is equal, both Jew and Gentile. And so as he's evaluating that, he's saying, well, there are a lot of promises given to Abraham, and so if it's not by works, for even Abraham has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, then what did Abraham gain? And so what we're talking about and looking at today is that Abraham was justified, faith, justified by faith before he was circumcised, and not by his works, but by his faith, so that Abraham then is the father in faith of both the Jews and the Gentiles. So... I've organized it a little bit differently than I did last time. Instead of reading through the whole passage at once, we'll just read through small sections, and then um, we'll talk about each of those sections as we go through it. So Romans 4, verse 13. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. So the centerpiece of this verse is the promise that was given to Abraham. And you'll, if you scour the Old Testament, you'll find nowhere in the Old Testament does it say word for word, Abraham, you'll be the heir of the world. But there are several promises that are given to Abraham. And the centerpiece and the reference that is commonly um, cited when you're reading through the scriptures um, and the, the cross-references is Genesis 17, 4 through 6. This says, uh, God speaking to Abraham, Behold, my covenant is with you. And you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. So this is the promise that introduces, as it were, the promises that are given to Abraham. And in various places throughout the Old Testament, this is expanded on or given in different language. And you can sum up all of the different conversations, promises made from God to Abraham in essentially three different ways. Abraham is going to be given the land. That's the promised land. Abraham is going to be a blessing to all the peoples of the world. And Abraham, um, from Abraham, will come a multitude of nations. So these three promises are essentially summed up in what Paul says here, that Abraham would be the heir of the world, Abraham and his offspring. So Paul is looking at this promise and asking, what does this promise depend on? How is it fulfilled? And how is it granted not only to Abraham and to his offspring? And the Jews traditionally held this assumption that the way that you would be a descendant of Israel, the way that you would receive the promises that were granted to Abraham is by taking on the, the yoke of the law and earning your righteousness through works. But Paul here is instead arguing that it, it's not by works, it can't be by works, as he'll go on to say, but rather Abraham was declared righteous, and by the declaration of this righteousness, <clears throat> it was evidence of his faith. So the righteousness that he had was not of works, but of faith. And so this contrast is in, 
introduced here in this section in verse, thir in verse 13, and it serves as the central thesis for the entire section that we're talking about today. And so the rest of the passage is more or less spent proving the point that he's asserting in verse 13, that, um, that this promise did not come through the law, as it says, but through the righteousness of faith. And so let's look at how does Abraham, or sorry, how does Paul go on to prove this thesis? Verse 14 and 15. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. So why does Paul argue here that if faith comes through the law, then the law has to be null and void? And there's two reasons for that. So number one, Paul has already argued this point that to the one who works, it is counted as his wage. And so that means if the granting of the promise is coming through the law, then the one who is receiving the promise is getting it as his wage. So furthermore, and this is resting on all the stuff that Paul has already argued, all have fallen short of the glory of God. All have sinned. All have broken the law. And therefore, none are able to achieve the wage of the work. So this is what Paul is highlighting when he says that the law only brings wrath. It's, the law is not primarily focusing on what we're doing right, but it will highlight everything that we're doing wrong. And it is not, it is not wicked, therefore, or insufficient, even because it does that. But Paul is saying here, if you're looking to the law to grant you the promises of God, it will be utterly inadequate to do that because you are inadequate. You cannot fulfill the law. If you were able, as he has implied earlier in Romans, if you were able to fulfill all of the law, then you can have the promises through the law, but none can do it. So the question here I have for us is... Well, let's just answer the question briefly with a yes or no, and then we'll see why I'm asking this question. Someone answer for me. Before the, before the law was given, the Mosaic law, did sin exist? Yes or no? Yes. Does everyone agree? Yes. So, why then does Paul say, where there is no law, there is no transgression? If there was no law and yet sin still existed, what does Paul mean when he says, where there is no law, there is no transgression? Yeah, exactly. Thank you. Couldn't have said it better myself. So, and I probably won't. So, um, so, But just to reiterate, to make an attempt at it anyway, where there is no law, you can't transgress against anything. So even though we know that sin, so what is sin? Sin is a transgression against the law of God, and yet what that is all pointing to is the, the character of God himself. And so you can sin against the character of God, but Paul here is saying where there is no law, 
your sin is not counted per se as a transgression. And so, if there is no law to be broken, then you can't break the law to break the promise. But if the law is, sorry, if the promise is dependent upon the law, then the breaking of the law is the breaking of the promise. <clears throat> and so, Paul is adding these arguments up to show how it can't, the promise cannot be dependent upon the law. Let's read further. 16 through 19, verses 16 through 19. Now he's introducing the story of Abraham and his faithfulness. So Paul says, that is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all of his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed. He gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about 100 years old when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. So this promise must depend on faith he argues, because it is separated from the condemnation of the law. So he goes back over and over to this, all have sinned and fallen short. That's one premise that he is not saying out loud, but he is resting on this premise of the condemnation of the law. And so <clears throat> since he's already established that that affects everyone, he's looking out across the people of God to whom the promise was given and saying, how then can the people of God receive the promises if it is dependent on the law and all have fallen short. And he says it can't. Therefore, if it is to be given to the offspring, as he says, that is why it depends on faith. In order that the promise may rest on grace, one, and be guaranteed to all of his offspring. For if it's not on faith, it can't be guaranteed to all of his offspring. So one summary, and this is there's a couple ideas that I got from Douglas Moo, who wrote a, a very lengthy commentary on, isn't that his first name, Douglas? Yes, okay. Who wrote a very lengthy commentary on Romans. <clears throat> and he has this idea that, uh, of the contrasting. If then the promise rested on works from man's side, it would depend on obligation from God's side. And so that is Paul's idea that if it comes through works, then the promise would be the wage of the works. And of course, he goes on later to say the wages of sin, which is the work that we do, is death, not promise. But if on our side it rests on faith, then it depends on grace from God's side. And so once again, you look at, he says, that is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace. For if it depended on law, then God would be obligated to give it to us if, when we fulfill the law. But since it depends on grace, or sorry, since it depends on faith, God is able to give it to us as grace. Now when we look at verse 17, we're again referring back to the promise in Genesis 17:5. But he also pulls out these key qualities that he wants to highlight of God, which I thought was interesting. He says, he, he, say, or he stated this in the presence of God in whom he believed, and then he says about God, he gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist, which is a very, I think, puzzling characteristic to pull out about God 
until you look forward and read, and that's why I included a longer section here. He says of Abraham in verse 19, he did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead. And so we see Abraham was as good as dead. God is the one who raises from the dead. And then he says of Sarah, <clears throat> he did not weaken in his faith when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. And Abraham in verse 17 has already stated, not only is God the one who raises from the dead, but God is the one <clears throat> who calls into existence the things that do not exist. And so from the barrenness of Sarah's womb, from that which did not exist, God gives them a son. And there's an analogy there, in a way, uh, with the birth of Christ even, you could say. For although we certainly cannot say that Christ did not exist prior to his birth, from the barrenness, as it were, or from the, <clears throat> from the physiologic impossibility of Mary giving birth as a virgin, God called into existence the birth of Christ. So <clears throat> there's a reason for him highlighting these, making them relevant then to the story of Abraham and showing us why it is that he can say Abraham believed against hope. For everything that man would teach us is that there's no way that the promises of God can come true. We see that Abraham is as good as dead. We see that Sarah's womb is completely barren. And yet, how is it that Abraham believes against hope? Because he knows God. So Paul says here, in hope he believes against hope. Now Chrysostom says it was against man's hope, and it was in the hope which is of God. So again, highlighting what we just laid out. Even though the principles of man would teach us that this cannot happen, the principles of God, the character of God, the, the being of God himself teaches us that everything that we know to be true according to man is false. So it says in the scriptures, let God be true, though, no, though everyone a liar. And that is the foundation that Paul is relying on here. There's a Christian philosopher from the 19th century named Soren Kierkegaard, and he said that he who loves God without faith reflects on himself, while the person who loves God in faith reflects on God. So I think what, what Kierkegaard is trying to say here is exactly what, is, uh, what Paul is saying, which is if you look to God, if you believe in God, quote unquote, without faith, all that you can rest on is what you can see, what you can observe, and what you know of yourself. And so if you're believing without faith, then you're resting on your own vision. You're resting on your own interpretation of the truth. And so you're reflecting on yourself. While Kierkegaard says the person who loves God in faith reflects simply on God. Um, Kierkegaard wrote this book called Fear and Trembling, and he's using this book as a, a very prolonged meditation on the once again the faith of Abraham but in this case he's speaking of the faith of Abraham as it refers to the sacrifice of Isaac so we know that Abraham trusted in the promise of Genesis 3:15 that the promise which would come from a seed he trusted in the promise of God that he would be the father of many nations and yet when God commanded him to sacrifice Isaac 
he did not hesitate at all. Now Hebrews tells us that Abraham considered God was even able to raise Isaac from the dead. And Kierkegaard's reflection on this is from a secular ethical standpoint, in other words, from the mindset of, of man, merely man, Abraham sure does look an awfully lot like a murderer, ready to kill his child in a, some sort of religious fanaticism. And yet, he says from a religious standpoint, he rises far above this, the ethics of man, as it were, and shows his faith in God. And in Kierkegaard's view, this faith begins where our understanding ends. Now, this is not the cultural idea of faith, which is belief without evidence, but rather, once you reach a point as a child where you can't work out how exactly it is that the promises are gonna, become, are gonna come true, as a child looking to a parent, you just trust. Not without evidence, but because you know the character of your father. And so likewise, Abraham here couldn't have understood precisely how this could come true. And this applies to Isaac, but it also applies to the promises of God that were given to Abraham in Genesis 17 when he said, you'll be the father of many nations. It's like, well, me and Sarah haven't had a kid yet, and I'm 100 years old. And yet, he trusted in this promise. So we likewise can reflect on our own faith, I think, and say, well, God has promised us that we would raise from the dead. God has promised us heaven. God has promised us, despite our sin, somehow that we are being sanctified. God has promised us somehow through suffering that we will be made perfect. God has promised us somehow that heaven is a place with golden roads and all of these promises. And so we know that we don't understand these things. We have so many questions about how this can be. How will we rise from the dead? What will heaven be like? Am I really getting better when it feels like every day of suffering is impossible? And if we, if we are allowing our faith to rest first in the promise, then our faith falls apart. But if we are looking at our faith towards God and his character as someone who is trustworthy, reliable, good, just, merciful, all of these qualities of God that he has evidenced to us in his word and in our lives, that is where our faith stands. I think that's the relevance that this philosopher has to this text is he's showing us exactly what, what Paul here is saying is that God's character should be trusted even when your own knowledge and understanding cannot, cannot put the two together. God says, my power is made perfect in your weakness. And by implication, his power is made perfect in our lack of understanding, in our deficit of knowledge. When our, when our minds and our brains and even our confidence lacks in what we know, God calls us as Abraham to believe against hope. And in fact, that's what he called Abraham first to do so that he could be the father of us all. And it's on, this is the faith that Paul is saying, this is the faith that it earns the declaration of righteousness, as it were. But if this faith earns the declaration of righteousness, then how is it not by works? And Paul, through, all throughout Romans and all throughout all of his epistles, 
sort of crowns the top of this righteousness by faith by saying the faith that is a gift is a gift that's given to you when he opens your eyes. Paul goes on to tell us about this faith that Abraham said, uh, had in verse 20 and 22. He says, No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why the faith was counted to him as righteousness. So Abraham, we are told, grew strong in this faith. And this contrast, I think, at least maybe you're, um, hopefully you all are much better than I am in your faith, especially when you pray. For, when I pray for strength, when I pray for patience, when I pray for perseverance, what I'm hoping to happen is that in an instant, the things that I'm going through are going to become easier. I will be granted patience in an instant. I will be granted perseverance in an instant, and then it will make life easier. But the way God seems to grant the answers to these prayers is that they're, they're strengthened over time. They're, they're strengthened by trial. So the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, as he says in James. Paul in chapter 5 of Romans goes on to say that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, and character produces hope. So when we read this story, we have to be careful to understand that it was not in an instant that the faith of Abraham was able to grow strong, but it was through the trial, the furnace of suffering, that his faith was refined. All of that is underneath this declaration that he grew strong in his faith. And so... It serves as a reminder that all of these things that we have pointed out, all of the doubts, as it were, that could rise up, all of the knowledge of man that Abraham was contending with were not something that he just trampled over without noticing it, but he, he has to have been thinking, I am 100 years old. Sarah hasn't been able to have a, a son. And yet, he believed. It was not... <clears throat> that his belief came naturally, so to speak, but that these doubts served as a trial for him. And the way that the scripture presents them, um, briefly laying them out, I think does not do justice to the trial that Abraham went through. And so in the same way, once again, Abraham proves himself to be truly the father of us in faith. Because we all know that the faith that's presented if we just glaze over all of those difficulties of Abraham does not feel like the faith that we are presented with, the faith that has doubts, the faith that experiences the reality of the world. Later, Paul uh, describes this in a different way. So, as in this text, he says the faith of Abraham was strengthened. He compares it later to the growing of an athlete. So just as muscles are worn and broken down to be built up again, Likewise, our faith has to be pressed against, contended against, in order to be brought up again. Paul says, Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So thinking of the, the, the marathon runner training to win a marathon, to win that perishable wreath, as he calls it, or the trophy or the first prize, <clears throat> they strive after that day after day. And likewise, Abraham contended again and again and again with every doubt. So in this we see faith is no easy thing, 
But like I said before, it's not, it's not a work that we are able to muster up either. And Paul, this whole time, like I said, he's teaching that this faith is a gift that is granted to God, and yet, at the same time, and perhaps even this is something that we have to contend with in our faith. Faith is granted to us as a gift, but it sure feels like a work sometimes. Yes? Mm-hmm. Because he gave glory to God, his faith grew stronger. Right. Uh huh. Mm hmm. Yeah. There's almost a sense in which he's catechizing himself. He's, remain, he's reminding himself of truths daily. And it may not be sitting down and reading, you know, whatever scriptures he had at that time. But it, even the act, even acting out the, the truth of that belief, even saying uh, praises to God and even acting out his faith is self-catechism in a sense doing these works that correlate with righteousness uh, remind him of that which he holds in his core. Yeah, that's helpful. Let's look at verses 23, 24, and 25. Abraham closes this with, but the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. I found this a very helpful uh, thing to close on because it's been difficult to close out some of these half chapters. Some of them are very formidable, and he hasn't yet gotten to the part where it's hopeful in some of them, but this is very hopeful. After this long explanation of Abraham, right? So looking back in summary, what has he said? He said, this promise that was given to Abraham that he should be heir of the world, how was it given to him? Well, we know, we already take for granted that it is given to the children of Abraham, spiritual children. It can't be through works because we know that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And it can't be through works furthermore because that would steal the grace of God. He would owe it to you. And none can earn that grace. And he says, Instead, it must be through faith. Now look to Abraham who had faith. And how was that faith carried out? Abraham hoped against hope. Abraham didn't look to the world for answers. He didn't trust in the observations that he was able to make. But instead, he trusted in the very character of God, who has proven himself worthy, although he does not owe us that proof, who has shown himself to be kind and merciful, who has kept his promises to us. And it is through this faith because it is not through works, it must be through faith that the promise comes, that the righteousness comes. And after this long explanation, Paul brings us back to the practical. He says, now after all that I've told you about Abraham, this is for you. This is for you too. 
So Moo says, Douglas Moo, who wrote that commentary, it is faith that is reckoned, a faith that is apart from works, apart from circumcision, apart from law, apart from sight, and therefore a reckoning that is solely a matter of grace. It is apart from anything that allows us to trust in ourselves. The carpet, as, as it were, is pulled out from underneath us. Everything that we could possibly rest in that we can see for ourselves is pulled out, and we are given faith by grace only in the character of God. So every bit of this is commanding us to center our vision and to center ourselves, and to orient our movement towards God. Paul here highlights this faith in God. Using, he uses the name of God, not of Christ, although it is in Christ, to highlight that this is the very God that Abraham trusted in. So we, we hear the name of God, God the Father, most often in the Old Testament. In the epistles of the New Testament, <clears throat> you most often hear faith referred to as being in Christ. And yet here Paul wants to remind us this is one and the same. This is the very God that Abraham trusted in. Not separating God and Christ, God the Father, and Christ as being two separate gods, but reminding us rather by using the two names that they are unified, they are one. Two different people of the Trinity, one God. And because this is the same God that Abraham believed in, the same God who granted all of this blessedness to Abraham, he grants it to his children as well. And we can have faith that the one who, who gave Abraham something to hope in against hope can give us that same thing. And then Paul, uh, as he always does so well, he closes with this glorious yet brief explanation of the gospel for us. Christ died for our trespasses. He was raised for our justification. So our sin incurred the wrath of God that's underneath this. We, in a way, crucified Christ through our sin. We participated in his death because it was our sin that he died for. Yet he gave himself up for the flock willingly. He gave himself up for his brothers, for his bride, so that through his death we might be justified before a most holy and most righteous most wise God of the universe so that we can stand forever with a promise that God gave us all the way back to Abraham, all the way back in Genesis 3.15 even, a promise that can't be taken away, a promise that doesn't depend on our works, a promise that depends only on the gift of God by grace, a gift of faith that <clears throat> we rest in the character of God and God alone who is unshakable, whose word must come true, so that we can have an eternal hope that goes against any hope of the world <clears throat> and then lasts for us forever. Um, you'll notice I couldn't come up with many discussion questions for this one. So, sorry. Um, but does anyone have any questions as we close? Yes. Or a statement. Yeah, that's fine.
Definitely so, yep. very helpful. When you look at the way this reads, you know, it sounds like Abraham only had one son, which is not true. Many times throughout the Old Testament, I think, and Abraham may be one of the most notable ones, thinking of the promise, you will, you know, you will be the father of many nations, or even the promises that I've referenced a couple times of Genesis 3.15, that the Savior would come through the seed, that the Savior would come through a son. We see many times in the Old Testament where uh, the the faithful ones of God are disobedient in that they are not faithful in their marriage and they seek other ways of getting a child. This is sin. Like, let me be clear, I'm not saying that's not sin. And yet, as you were saying, the orientation of their whole life is towards that promise. Why did they go through these other ways? It, they were seeking in a way to fulfill that promise. They were looking to have that son through which the promise of God would be carried out. And they sinned in doing it, yes. But if the orientation of our whole life, as you said, is to God, the promises of God, when we receive that rebuke and correction, then God will bring us back into the fold. And we see that all the way in Corinthians, speaking of church discipline. That's the whole point of church discipline, is to bring us back into the fold. Any other thoughts? Yes. But he did, yeah. Yeah, that's a great point. It's like Paul is adopting the mind of Christ. I have, oh, that's a great, that's a really good point. Oh, yeah. Yes, very much so. All right. Thank you. Yeah, that's a very fitting close. Let's pray. God, we are grateful that we can come together, that we can participate with one another in thinking through these passages. Please cause us to glorify you. Please use my <clears throat> feeble efforts to bring glory and to be helpful to your church. 
and cause us to look to you. Be with us as we are moving into the worship service and remove all distraction from the world and cause us to center ourselves on you and glorify you in the way that you have asked in the way that pleases you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.